Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindala. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. Today, we're having a conversation with Dr. Delaram Shirazian, an assistant clinical professor at the SUNY School of Optometry. She is the creator of the Instagram account, Humanizing Healthcare, where she emphasizes the importance of community care and the doctor-patient relationship. And she also shares snippets from medical humanity research papers that express how the doctor-patient relationship is affected by our communication skills. This was a long but needed conversation, so we hope you all enjoy it as much as we did and learn more on how to improve your communication skills with your patients. Dr. Shirazian, um, for any of our listeners on our podcast who are not familiar with who you are, could you please give us a little introduction about yourself? Sure. So I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and that's also where I completed optometry school at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And after optometry school, I went on to do a residency in ocular disease and low vision at the Kansas City VA Medical Center. And I really think it was my residency program that kind of sparked my interest in this human side of healthcare. So I owe a lot to my residency supervisor, Tim Harkins, because every week we used to actually have a humanities session. So us residents and also our faculty, um, the doctors at the VA, we would all get together and we would discuss various articles and texts on really like the art of doctoring. And one week we actually talked about patient-doctor communication. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is really what we do as optometrists, right? We just sit there in the exam room and obviously there's a technical component to what we do, but man, we just talk in that room all day. And I thought about, wow, like I really hadn't thought about like how I'm speaking to my patients and how much my words matter until those sessions. And then after residency, I realized I really wanted to go into teaching. And so I applied to various um, optometry schools and I felt like I found a perfect fit at SUNY because I actually presented on patient-doctor communication for my faculty interview. And that was also kind of out of left field because coming in and, and doing an ocular disease residency and low vision, like I think they were expecting me to, you know, present on glaucoma or something like <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and I, I just came in with like this patient-doctor communication talk and uh, SUNY was the, the first place that I felt like they were like, wow, we really want to incorporate this into our curriculum. And they seemed like as excited about it as I was. And I realized that that was kind of a perfect fit for me. So I've been at SUNY ever since. Oh, wow. That's great. So um, it's really interesting that your residency included what you just said, like a humanity course, because I, I was in a residency program. Nothing like that was ever brought up. So I wonder how many you know, people across North America are really adding that, you know, kind of communication sort of course or empathetic, you know, skills and things like that into the residency program, other than just being fast, quick, efficient, smart, technical, things like that. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's so important. And it's actually why I chose my particular residency program, because I mean, I think every, there's so many great residency programs out there yeah. and I applied to a lot of great ones, but one thing that really stood out about the Kansas city VA was this emphasis on like learning more about the human side. And I realized mm -hmm. like, 
wow, that's like something that I don't feel like I got to explore enough of in optometry school. I don't know if you guys yeah. felt the same way. I think I that's why we're so obsessed with you and your Instagram account, because yeah. I think we all kind of talked about this before. And we're, and then when we discovered you, I was like, oh my God, these are all the kind of issues we've been talking about. Yeah. And so we'll like jump right into it. Um, you did mention you teach a course on the art of communication at SUNY. So, you know, at ICO, we did not have a course like this. And I am assuming that some other optometry schools don't have courses like this either. So could you go into more detail on what subject material the course entails and what the overall goals are um, when you're taking this course? Yeah, so I actually teach communication in a couple of different ways at SUNY. So one of the ways is within the first year curriculum. So in like the clinical optometry sequence, where you kind of like learn like the, the ins and out of optometry. Mm -hmm. And I have three different lectures there. And the first one is kind of like an introduction to patient doctor communication. So kind of like the basic things that everyone should know, but I don't know that we're ever taught, like making sure that you're maintaining eye contact with your patient, sitting down at eye level, you know, even how you greet your patients, like that first impression of when you meet someone has such a lasting effect on how that person uh, thinks about you. So I think that, you know, those simple things that we don't think about enough, um, I, I try to bring that into the first course. Um, and then the second lecture is on breaking bad news. So there's a few different protocols out there on how to do that effectively. So we go over that. And it is kind of early, it is their first year, but I always kind of preface it by, you know, this is something that you should kind of keep in your back pocket and use throughout your um, optometry career. And the third lecture is on um, a patient, actually. So I interview a patient in front of the class. And that's one of my favorite lectures wow. because it's, it's one thing to have me standing there as your professor, as your instructor saying, this is really important. Um, because I think when we all get into optometry school, we're really like more enamored with like, oh, I really want to learn like the anatomy and like the yeah. disease mm -hmm. and like the cool stuff and like the one and two and using the four after. And we're not like that excited about like how to talk to a patient. Yeah. So I think bringing that patient in and interviewing them and getting their perspective on how important building rapport is with their doctors, how important it is that their doctors communicate effectively with them. Most of the students leave that lecture <laughs> versus all the other ones, um, I think gaining so much from it because they, yeah. they, they take away like, oh, wow, like this is something I really need. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I teach is an elective course on um, the art and science of effective communication. So that course is much smaller, usually about 10 or 15 students in there. And we dive much deeper into these topics. So the first half of that elective course is actually on public speaking. So a couple of my colleagues help with that part. And then the second half is on patient doctor communication. So this involves a lot more like reading on the topic. So I bring in articles and evidence so some, a lot of the articles that I share on my page and the other thing that we do in there is we dive deeper into like patient education and breaking bad news. And my favorite thing we do there is some role-playing. So I give the students a scenario, like your patient comes in and you're diagnosing them with keratoconus for the first time. And in front of the class, they will role-play. One person will be the patient. One person will be the doctor and they have to effectively break bad news. And what's really cool about it is afterwards, we give them some constructive feedback from their peers as well as their instructors. And yeah. the overall goal of that course 
is really to inspire the students to continue to work on communication. And I tell them that, I preface it. I'm like, I can't teach you everything that you need to know about this in three lectures. You're gonna have to work on this throughout optometry school, throughout your entire optometry career. I love that you bring in a real patient in that lecture and the patient gives feedback because that's one thing that we don't get in the real world we don't get feedback from our patients on how we communicated, right? They are going to give the feedback to other people, whether it's good or bad. And they're going to give the feedback on Google. Like that's it. <laughs> so, so it's actually really, you know, eye-opening for a patient to come and sit in the classroom and, you know, before these students get out in the real world, they already get a taste of what patients think of their doctors. Mm-hmm. So that I wish we had that because we're learning now in the real world as new grads, we still think, how did our patient take that information? Mm -hmm. I still don't know if they really understood it. I don't know if I came off rude, straightforward. Was I too nice? And, And you always think about that. And then you try to practice for the next patient, but you still don't know if you've improved or not. Right. So that's, that's an excellent idea. I was just going to say, speaking of the patient that comes into the course, is it like a random uh, conversation or is it planned or do you just kind of wing it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So actually I have some questions prepared on like, you know, like, what do you think of doctors explain a time where like a doctor explains something to you and you didn't understand it. So I I prime them with some questions, but we don't talk about it. So I just send it to them. And like the first time I did it, I was, it was kind of like one of those things where you just like cross your fingers and hope yeah. it's going to go well. Cause I was yeah. like, what is she going to say? Like, what if she says like communication sucks and it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. <laughs> Course is over. Like you're already doing that. Right. And you're not really prepared what you're going to say. And then you're doing it in front of a whole class yeah. and you're just like, Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Thankfully oh, yeah. it was one of my colleagues, patients. And uh, my colleague was like, you know, I think she's going to be the perfect person for this. Like, I think her personality and like, is really going to mesh well with this. And it ended Mm -hmm. up being perfect. And like, she said things that I even told the class, I was like, I swear, I didn't tell her to say this because it was like (laughs) verbatim things from the lecture that, that we had taught them. So you recently shared a social media post on a study about orthopedic surgeons, where the patients and the surgeons were asked to rate the orthopedic surgeons communication skills. So when asked if they communicated effectively with their patients, 75% of surgeons agreed. When patients were asked if their provider communicated effectively with them, only 21% of patients agreed. So we often think we are much better at communicating with our patients than we actually are. So what are some ways to tell that we are actually communicating effectively with our patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. Cause I think we, you know, we talk about different tips and, and tricks and like what to say, but how do we actually like reflect on that? So I think mm-hmm. the first thing is to really like self-assess and to reflect on like your day's patients. So, so I think it requires like an active effort to like self-reflect on what conversations you had with your patients. And I think the other thing too, is really listening to our patients So when I explain something, especially if it's something new or a little bit complex, I kind of sit back afterwards and I say, okay, you know, we just talked about a lot. Tell me what questions you have or tell me what's confusing to you. I want to know like what your thoughts are. 
And that allows the patient time to ask you questions, to you know, ask for clarifications. And I think you can learn a lot about the questions that the patient asks you. If your patients are asking you the same questions after your explanations every single time, then maybe you need to work on that specific area of your explanation. So self-assessing and really listening to our patients um, is the best way of doing that. Yeah. If someone out there knows that you're not a good communicator, <laughs> find an alternative method too. So always have something in writing, you know, available for your yes. patients, like pamphlet or a handout for medications. Mm -hmm. Even um, I've seen some offices start to make kind of prescription pad for dry eye mm -hmm. therapy, because then it's written out um, <clears throat> when you know that you're busy in your office and yeah, you only have 50 seconds to spend telling this patient what to do, always having that extra type of communication that's written out would be um, a really good way to effectively communicate with them without actively trying to improve on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, you know, if you don't have the time. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. Also, if you are, you know, describing something or prescribing something that's yeah. a little bit more complex and multi-steps, mm -hmm. it yeah. is actually really good advice to, to write it down because the chances are they're not going to remember all yeah. of it. Yeah. You kind of touched base on this a little bit, but how can we improve our communication skills, especially when we work independently where we lack the regular feedback? Again, it goes a little bit with the, with the other answer of like self-reflection <clears throat> and listening, but I think the other thing too is like actually taking time to consider like how you're going to explain certain conditions to patients. So I actually like started a Google doc in, in residency because that was the first time where I felt like I was on my own in explaining certain conditions to patients and I realized how difficult it was. So I just had like the conditions, the name of the condition, and then some bullet points about what I thought was important in explaining that condition. Mm -hmm. What I don't think we should do is wing those conversations. So like the first time that somebody with bilateral disc edema is in your chair and you're trying to explain what that might mean, shouldn't be the first time that it's in your chair. You should have already thought about how you're going to explain that to a patient. You should have already kind of practiced that or had some talking points prepared. So I think we can do a lot behind the scenes and kind of making sure that we're prepared for those conversations. And you can also talk with your optometry colleagues. You guys have each other. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, mm -hmm. calling up a friend and saying, you know, I, I had this patient today and this is what they had. And I really struggled explaining it. And it was really challenging. How do you explain this to patients? Mm -hmm. And then if, if they have a better explanation, you guys can kind of talk through that. Or if they don't have a, a way of explaining that, you guys can <laughs> create one together. Yeah. Uh, we kind of did this in, in residency. I had two other co-residents and we uh, carpooled every day to, to work. And we would talk at the end of every day about a certain condition that one of us had that we like fumbled through. And it was really nice to be able to talk through that with other people and kind of you know, get other ideas of how mm -hmm. I could have done that better. <laughs> calling up a friend that is not in healthcare, so not optometry related, that doesn't know what papilledema is and yeah. calling them up and saying like, hey, you know, I really want to get better about explaining this to a patient. I'm going to go through this condition and I want you to let me know what you think I could improve upon or, or how mm -hmm. I did. Because you would be surprised that when I walk down the hallways, when I, what I hear students saying to patients, you know, we, <laughs> yeah, things like T-butt, tear breakup time, your tear breakup time is great today you know like okay, <laughs> I don't know what that means yeah. yeah so I think really like having somebody that's not in the optometry field listen to us can be really helpful 
pictures actually say a thousand words too. Mm -hmm. Like really jealous of people that have anterior seg cameras. I, I want one now. I don't manage anterior (laughs) seg disease at all, but I need one just because it's so much easier to just show you know, the patient, what you're looking at too. <laughs> and I'll definitely Absolutely. attest to that. We recently yeah. got like an anterior, anterior segment camera. And now I just like with yeah. corneal ulcers, any anterior seg issues, just take a picture. I'm like this, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then it they'll is. be like, Oh my God. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely helpful. Another oh. helpful thing is having, so I have a scribe, which I know not everybody can have, but having a scribe, I'll even ask her after I explain something when the patient's gone, but I'll be like, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Or yeah. And yeah. granted, she's heard me say it different ways, but she doesn't have like the biggest background in mm-hmm. optometry either kind of thing. So she also will Google different conditions and be, and so I can be like, this is what it looks like. This isn't in your um, eyeball, but this is yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. So with a scribe though, I always wonder, so when you're like saying things out loud and some things that like seemingly like aren't really vital for a patient to know, like Rachel melanosis, you know, or something. So do you find that patients will be concerned about certain things that you're saying Mm -hmm. or not really? It depends on the patient. So sometimes they are really concerned and I'll be like, I'll explain everything at the end. I'm just saying things out loud to Jessica. And a lot of this is within normal limits. So, okay. Yeah. I, I make it a point to tell my students, uh, to not, so we talk about all the stuff like in the, you know, faculty room before I go into the patient room. Cause I don't want to be looking at BIO and they're like, oh yeah, there was one drusen in the temporal periphery. And then, you know, the patient's just worried about that for the whole time. So <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and even, um, I remember one of, um, my attendings during my externships, I think it was a corneal ulcer in a patient. And so my attending doctor brought us all in just to take a peek. And one of the students started making like a Oh, 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 oh. And then the attending doctor like pulled him out and he's like, listen, don't respond. Like, don't make any noise. Don't make a, you know, just nod if you see it or nod if you don't like just, you don't have to react because then the patient's going to be like, what are you looking at? What is so shocking on my eye? And that starts to panic them a little when we're in those situations, like we kind of forget like, oh, this, there's a person there's that's a connected person. to these mm-hmm. eyes. Yeah, exactly. So when we start talking about this jargon. I, I try to have my students be really mindful of that, yeah. you know, sometimes we say things and patients are going to worry about them. They're going to go home and Google them. And, or sometimes yeah. you get just down this rabbit hole of explaining something that like really doesn't need to be explained. Like the patient mm-hmm, doesn't yeah. need to know that it's there because it's really so benign and so yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. So I think trying to avoid that at all costs is yeah. the <laughs> Um so we we just talked about how we can improve our communication skills with our patients as healthcare providers. Do you have any particular tips to improve communication when a language barrier exists between the patient and a healthcare practitioner? And let's say you know, maybe a translator is not readily available or a family member did not show up with the patient. Um, what would you do in that situation? Yeah, I think these situations are sometimes a little bit like stress inducing for 
us as docs, because I think we really want to help our patients. And once we realize that there may be a barrier there to doing that effectively, it kind of like stresses us out and we don't know how to react. So I think first and foremost, even though there's different verbal and nonverbal cues that are appropriate in various cultures and languages, I think kindness is universal. So I think if we go into an exam kind and truly wanting to help a patient, I think that that is something that everybody is going to be able to see. Mm-hmm. Second, I really think we have to use the language translation services. Um, you know, at, at SUNY, we're lucky that we have um, a phone service that we use, so we can get it from the front desk or it's in a lot of different exam rooms and it has two different um, speakers. So I have one, the patient has one, and then there's a translator in between mm. because I don't really know any other way around that. So we, we're not even supposed to use like Google Translate or anything that's not, you know, HIPAA approved or approved for the communication services. So I think we do have to use those services in order to make sure that we're communicating effectively with our patients. Mm-hmm. When we are using an interpreter, there are some different things that we can do to make sure that that is being done effectively. So first we have to make sure that um, we're speaking directly to the patient. So one thing we don't want to do is say like, oh, will you tell the patient that their vision is 2020 today? We want to you know, talk like we're talking directly to our patient and the translator will translate that. Second, we also want to make sure we're speaking in short and concise sentences. So usually when we're talking to patients and explaining things, we're going on and on and on, but you have to like say one or two sentences and pause, let the translator translate, say one or two more sentences and go on like that. Otherwise it's going to be difficult for the translator to probably keep up. (laughs) So I think those are my, my best tips on that, but it is a really challenging and sometimes stress inducing Mm -hmm. um, time because we, again, we want to take care of our patients and and that can be challenging in those situations. Mm -hmm. Switching gears a little bit, you know, all of us have experienced the non-compliant patient and we seldom point the finger back at ourselves to assess what we could have done better for the patient, for them to successfully follow their treatment plan and be compliant. So what are your tips to help practitioners have a better understanding of the patient's perspective of their own health so that we can diminish non-compliant behavior? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different reasons that patients are non-compliant or non-adherent. And I think their perspective of their health can be a really big one. So if patients don't quite understand their medical condition or why they're taking their medications, there's no reason for them to actually take their meds. So a a great example of this is glaucoma. That's a condition that we see commonly that requires chronic treatment and is a really big issue with noncompliance. And so if you think about like how intricate it is to explain glaucoma to a patient and how much they have to understand to take an eye drop or multiple eye drops every single day that may have side effects that cost a lot of money, it's kind of, you know, crazy that more patients don't, aren't, aren't um, not adherent to their glaucoma medication. So I think one way of combat, combating this is really making sure that we're explaining things thoroughly. So with glaucoma, you have to first explain that it's an optic nerve disease. You have to explain that the optic nerve doesn't regenerate. You also have to explain how it leads to slow vision loss. And then you also have to explain where the eye drops come in and how the eye pressure um, is controlled. So if you actually think about it on that like minuscule level, you realize, wow, this is a really complicated thing to explain to someone. 
I think also using pictures, we kind of talked about that earlier, um, showing various optic nerves and then showing a patient a photo of their optic nerve and kind of where they fall in the severity of glaucoma, showing them their OCT images or their visual fields and really including them like as a partner in their health care is really, really important in getting them on board. And I think as far as diminishing non-compliant or non-adherent behavior and understanding the patient's perspective of their health, there's two really important questions to ask a patient. And whenever you're asking these questions, make sure that you're asking them non-judgmentally. And the first one is, what do you understand about your condition? You can gain a lot by getting the patient's perspective. You may find that you thought that they knew that glaucoma was potentially blinding and they have no idea, or they thought that their medications were supposed to make their vision better. And that's obviously not the case. So I think that's a really important question. And number two, asking a patient, what has been difficult for you? What has been difficult about taking your medications? So figuring out like, what's kind of like the barrier between the non-adherence. So is it that it's a cost issue and you can kind of work on that with the patient? Is it just that it doesn't work with their schedules? Maybe you prescribe latanoprost and they fall asleep every night at 7 p.m. on the couch and don't make it to their evening medication. So I think we can learn a lot about patients and their perspectives by asking those two questions. I saw a really good example this past week of how different communication will really emphasize a condition to a patient. Um, I had a patient come in for an updated refraction because he was seen somewhere six months ago, this young 20 year old male, and he got new glasses. And now he feels like his vision is changing again. And he said, you know, the last doctor said something was wrong with my cornea. He said I should go see a specialist and I never went. And I said, okay, so you know, you do the whole exam, um, lots of sill, suspecting keratoconus. And I asked, what did the doctor tell you about your cornea? Like, what, what do you remember? And he said, that's it. I just know I have something with my cornea. And he just said, I should see a doctor. And I told him I don't want to. And then I sat with him and said, you know, this is what I'm finding. This is the disease. It's called keratoconus. That's what I'm suspecting. And that's probably what the other doctor was suspecting as well. So having that conversation with him, I think you could tell he was even, he finally understood the the condition and he was even disappointed in himself that he declined a specialist referral in the beginning. And, you know, then of course he was like, can you send me somewhere? Like, you know, can you give me a referral? So there's a big difference there with, the communication immediately. You know, I, I don't know what the other doctor said. They probably said the same thing, mm-hmm. but they, they might not have asked the question at the end. What do you understand of what I just told you? Or exactly. do you need me to repeat anything? Do you have any questions? And that makes a big difference with how these mm-hmm. people start to care about their own health, just because you take that extra minute to mm-hmm. ask them, what do you understand from mm-hmm this condition and what I just said. I also think that's where a lot of optometrists kind of struggle as to like how to communicate because they think about time too, right? Like, like how you were saying, explaining things maybe three or four times. And definitely like when I think about going to the family, my own family physician, and she tells me something, I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) She'll be like, okay, let me say this again. And it's like, I think practicing um, really helps with that. So like, like I was saying, like, if you kind of already have like a a script of like what you're going to say, it goes a lot smoother. 
because if yeah, there's a condition sure. that pops up that you're like, oh man, I haven't explained this in a long time. You can kind of fumble through it. It takes a lot longer. You, you realize that certain patients need you a little bit more than others. Yeah. And I think that's okay. You know, not yeah. everyone is going to need the same thing out of their providers. Mm-hmm. And like you were mentioning earlier, like using those like written out handouts mm-hmm. for things like I don't know, even presbyopia sometimes is yeah. <laughs> takes a while to explain. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but that's something really benign <laughs> that I feel like you could give a handout on and explain to them or, or have yeah. your optician um, mm-hmm. explain to them when they're getting yeah. new glasses. There's there's things that I feel like you can kind of um, make a, a little bit more efficient. But like you were yeah. saying, those conversations with those challenging conditions, mm-hmm. it's, it, there's no there's no way to rush those. Talking more about charting for our patients, you shed light on using particular um, clinical terminology to ensure we are not dehumanizing our patients. Certain wording or phrases can follow patients uh, through their medical journey and can impact their care with other health professionals. So for example, charting the patient denies drug use can be rephrased to the patient reports no use of illicit drugs. What should we be thinking about when we chart all this medical jargon in order to avoid dehumanizing our patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the main thing that we have to think about is remembering that our patients are people. Again, Mm -hmm. this is like a very seemingly simple thing, but if you think about it, like whenever we're going through like uh, patients throughout the day with our students, I'm always like, okay, this is a 49 year old female. They're a glaucoma suspect. We're constantly just referring yeah. to them as their conditions. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we do. We're, we're here to take care of their eyes, of course, but we have to remember that those eyes are actually connected to a person. So I think there's certain phrases that I've just gotten away from. And that's those phrases that label our patients. So even things like the diabetic patient, Um, I try to avoid using that both in conversation with my students and in a chart. I'd rather say, you know, this 53 year old male that has diabetes and putting that person before their condition. And also things like even labeling someone as a non-compliant patient. That's something that will go with them forever. You know, they're always going to be labeled as that patient that doesn't want to take their medication. So you know, putting in the chart, like patient has having difficulty affording their medications, like put the reason why they're not able to take their um, medications instead. I don't really know if there's any like particular things that I can think about in terms of charting, but I just think that we should be mindful of when we're writing something in a chart, when we're talking to colleagues, um, if you're in a setting where you're talking to students, especially that you're making sure to use like patient-centered terminology instead of just like labeling our patients. And Mm -hmm. we just, we have to constantly remind ourselves of this. So yeah, Yeah, I was just having a conversation with my sister today and she's a pharmacist in Ontario, Canada. And we were just talking about how um, we're trying to change the wording around our patients, especially when she's consulting and when I'm charting or even talking about a patient to a different colleague and she was saying exactly the same thing as you like Mm -hmm. how we need to put the person before the condition so yeah I was just like oh I'm going to be doing a podcast with Dr. Shirazi about this I'm so excited (laughs) you should listen to it (laughs) she's like oh okay so yeah it's just funny but I'm really glad you made that um those posts on your social media too Mm because now I'm starting to really change the way I chart and I'll like I think about like oh how will the next optometrist see this patient? Like, 
are they going to see them the way that I want them to see them, you know? So, yeah. yeah. I had a really good tip from one of my previous attendings as well. When patients ask for a copy of their own medical records, Mm -hmm. they get to read your charts, right? So even if they don't understand the medical short-term words, they Mm -hmm. understand the sentence that you're writing. So when you write up your case history, I think case Mm -hmm. history is the most sensitive one, right? So if you say patient complaining of headaches, well, you know, the patient can read that and be like, well, I wasn't complaining. Like I'm not (laughs) whining about it. You know, I, I'm experiencing headaches and I'm worried about it. I feel like this happens when patients are non-compliant with something with treatment Mm -hmm. that might give you this instinct that you're annoyed with the patient, you're angry with the patient because they're not listening to you. So you take that out in their chart and then you write, you know, told patient multiple times, explain to them the importance of this patient's still non-compliant after three follow-up visits. It's kind of like you're lecturing or you're letting it out, but that patient has access to that record anytime they want when they ask for it. So you don't want to insult your patient as well when they're reading it themselves. There's, there's things in there that just really shouldn't be in there because yeah. I don't ever want to like go into an exam with mm-hmm. some bias already against my yeah. patient or like some, you know, bias that implicit bias that I just, from reading their past chart, I just wanted yeah. to be purely like, what do I need to know to take care of this patient? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really good advice too. And, and what would the patient think about reading this? And and you mentioned one of my pet peeves. I don't like when the charts say complains because I, yeah. I agree. It's yeah. like the patient is not coming in like whining well, unless they have an urgent, like painful yeah. red eye. They're usually not coming in complaining per se. Yeah. And yeah. it kind of does have like a negative connotation. So I, yeah. I think it just like, like you said, just being really mindful about what we write. So besides humanizing healthcare, what are your favorite resources, articles, or books um, that you would recommend to educate healthcare professionals on better understanding and providing meaning, meaningful patient doctor relationships? Well, first and foremost, books. Yeah. I love <laughs> books on medical humanities. <laughs> so um, in residency, I was lucky to be gifted a book from one of the previous residency years. And it's called The Lost Art of Healing by Bernard Lone. And I think this is like the holy grail of medical humanities books. I read it three or four times already. And every time I read it, I feel like I take something new away from it. Just the way that he talks about patient care and like our role as doctors is not to cure, but to heal. Mm -hmm. And really like, what does that mean? Was just like really eye-opening for me. So I'd say that book is the first one that I recommend to anyone that's starting to read about medical humanities or interested in this topic. Other authors I really enjoy, Danielle Ofri. She has a book titled What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, Mm -hmm. which is a really great book on communication. And she goes through a lot of evidence-based, you know, studies and tidbits on communicating well with our patients. Anything that you read by her is, is excellent. There's also another book called Attending by Ronald Epstein that's on mindfulness for clinicians, which was also really insightful. And other resources that I have are just articles in various medical journals. So even journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, like the big name ones, they all have like this little section on medical humanities, or sometimes it's called perspective, I think. 
And so I actually go through those regularly just to like get articles and inspiration and my favorite ones I obviously post on my page. So I think if you actually look hard enough, even in the major medical journals, you'll find um, a lot of these resources. Um, you also started a medical humanities book club. How's that go- currently going in the middle of the pandemic? Yeah, so obviously <laughs> it switched over to Zoom like everything did. Um, but starting the the medical humanities book club was really kind of like selfishly, I got tired of reading all these books by myself and I wanted to talk about them with people. So (laughs) I asked, like I sent a a mass email out to the faculty at SUNY as well as the residents and just said like, hey, is anyone interested in reading medical humanities? And I was like, hopefully like a couple people respond. And actually I think 30 or 40 people responded and I was blown away. Yeah, so we, at first I was like, we're gonna do it monthly. And then I was like asking faculty to read a book every yeah. single month is a lot. Yeah. yeah. So quarterly has worked out well for us and we kind of get together for an hour to discuss the book. It's like a very open format, which I really enjoy. Like I have some questions just to kind of lead the group but I let the conversation just flow to whatever. But since the pandemic, it's it's been on Zoom, which I mean, it's it's, harder to kind of connect with people through Mm -hmm, Zoom, I feel like, but at least we're still um, able to hold the book club, which I'm thankful for. So our next one's coming up in a couple of months and again on Zoom, hopefully one day back in person. Are you ever planning to expand the access to this book club outside of SUNY, making this more like across the country, worldwide? Are these gonna be like conferences? Cause that would be really cool. That's a really interesting idea. So one thing that we did with like the community book club was we went into Zoom breakout rooms because Mm -hmm. it's just hard when you have a lot of people, especially like over a hundred people, like how do you actually discuss a book and how do people feel comfortable speaking up? Yeah. So that worked out really well. Um, I don't know. I mean, it would be awesome to expand it. Obviously more people to talk about these books with, I would love. Yeah. Uh, But what I do try to do is I try to post on my page, um, the books that we read. So if people are interested in in doing that, they can, I've been meaning to do this and I promise I will do it now. Now that I'm saying it, (laughs) you guys, it's, it's evidence. I'm saying this, I'm going to put a a guide up on how to host a medical humanities book club. So if people want to kind of start or one at their own institution, yeah. um, I'd be happy to like guide people in that. But you bring up a great point. Like what if at the next academy meeting, we yeah. choose a medical humanities book club and we all get together and talk about it? Yeah, it's just, you know, this, our podcast has really, I think, opened up so many topics that are really important mm-hmm. for not just optometry, but other healthcare professions. But, you know, these topics are something that are not discussed every day in school. Mm-hmm. And then when you're in the real world after graduation, you're pretty much isolated, right? I mean, everyone goes their own ways. You know, there's just so many amazing topics that nobody talks about. And this is definitely one. And yeah. it would be so important to have things like this discussed in conferences mm-hmm. and not you know, review of amblyopia 101. Like, yes, it's necessary, but I think there's a lot of topics that were never discussed. There's never been a 101 on yeah. communication. Mm-hmm. And these are things that, you know, I'd love to go to conferences about mm-hmm. and get CE credit for something like that, because that mm-hmm. is part of our career. And we have to always improve ourselves on our communication skills. 
So why not, you know, have that part of our continuing education? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll back yeah. you up on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find the petition. <laughs> well, I will say <laughs> I have put out, you know, lectures to national conferences on this topic. So hopefully one day they will become approved. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Yes. Okay. But for SUNY, we have our local CE programs. We had one recently where I did a whole lecture on the non-adherent patient and mm-hmm. talked about all of that. So I think on a local level, SUNY really supports it. And I feel like yeah. I've been able to get a lot of things out. But like you said, it's that may not be available to everyone. I don't know that yeah. people that are not in the Northeast really you know, attend those conferences virtually. So I'm with you. We need more of these things on a national level. I think as a profession, you know, the medical schools and the medicine field in general talks about this a lot because Mm -hmm. a lot of like the people I talk to about it on social media, a lot of my sources are all from medicine. So it's like, Mm -hmm. this is being talked about in healthcare, but why isn't optometry talking about this? So I think that's one of my goals of starting the Instagram page too, is putting a voice out there for optometry to be like, we we care about this too. And we should care about this and our schools should be teaching it. And we should be talking more about this because it's, it's literally what we do every day. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you got a 4.0 in optometry school and you passed all parts Mm -hmm. of boards. If you can't go in that exam room and explain to a patient why they should take a certain treatment or why they need to come back for a follow-up, you're not an effective doctor. And I think that's what is difficult to realize maybe when you're in optometry school, because you're like, yeah. I have this knowledge, I have good grades, yeah. I passed boards, mm-hmm. but doctoring is, is just so much more than the technical stuff. That's, yeah. that's all For like, sure. just, it's like the iceberg, like all of that, your good grades, yes. it's all superficial. No patient is going to ask you if you got honors in school. They don't Correct. care. They just yeah. want to know, can you fix what I have? Yeah. Like, can you treat what I have? Can you keep me in good hands? Am I safe with you? You won't kill mm-hmm. me. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, I think we can definitely say your social media humanizing healthcare um, definitely got us to start internally reflecting on the mm-hmm. articles that you're sharing, the quotes that you're sharing and the captions. I mean, there's so much knowledge on your social media, on your Instagram posts Um, We highly, highly recommend everybody that's listening to follow your social media, read the posts, read the captions thoroughly and sit for like two seconds and just reflect on what article you've um, shared and the information that's there and see if that's hopefully something that you're already applying like Mm -hmm. in your practice every day, even as a student in clinic you know, during your rotations, Mm -hmm. this is something to start practicing. Cause I think as new grads, we've, we've seen the difference Mm -hmm. with how our communication has changed. Even one year out of graduation, um, Mm -hmm. it's constantly changing and we're learning from all the mistakes from patients past. So, um, yeah, it's really important. It's a really important topic and we're so thankful to have you here today and talk to us about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, well, this is what like I love talking about. So, <laughs> yeah. anytime you guys want to chat about this. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Mm-hmm.